You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. workplace? Do people know that you are a Christian? And does your work testify that you are a Christian? As you have opportunity, if you'll publicly acknowledge that you are a Christian, and that's why you're not going to cheat, and that's why you're not going to be deceptive, and that's why you're going to do things honest and above board, and you're unashamed because you're motive, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So whether in the classroom, the workplace, the marketplace, the neighborhood, If you were to take a tally, how many different social environments that you interact with regularly know that you're a Christian? For the ones that do know that you're a believer, how many of them know so because you told them? In today's message, Pastor Danny reflects on what it means to be unashamed as a believer and follower of Christ. In his study, you'll learn how powerful a witness it is when you can unashamedly profess Christ while being above reproach and compromise. Now here's Pastor Danny in Revelation chapter 2 with today's edition of The Living Word. It comes from one of those verses that if you memorize, you memorize it and it gives you those warm, fuzzy feelings every time you recite it. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Here it is. For it's been granted to you, Christian, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Imagine Christmas and your most beloved person in all the world. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a child. Uh, maybe it's your mom or dad. And you open the box and it's nicely wrapped. And you open the box and it's a box of suffering. Why in the world would you give me this? Because I love you. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Acts 5, the apostles are threatened by the Supreme Court. Then they are beaten for their public proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. And it says they left after being beaten, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. Peter would write and he would say, if you suffer, shouldn't be as a meddler or as a thief or as any other kind of criminal. But if you suffer as a Christian... Don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. It's a privilege. You count it worthy from heaven's perspective. Number five, you find this one also in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. And here's what Paul, the apostle, writes there. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's the miraculous 
but he doesn't stop there. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. People that avoid suffering for Christ's sake and try to, you know, get by as easy as they can, you know, and they choose what they're going to sacrifice and what they're not going to sacrifice. They never grow really close to Christ. Some of my most memorable times, it always comes to my mind. Every time, every time I, I go through that verse and this point, I think about the years I spent on mission trips in Russia with my wife not there in January, and it is stupid cold. The food was terrible. I'm from Florida, and I'm in stupid cold, and I didn't want to be there, humanly speaking. But some of my sweetest times with the Lord were thousands of miles away, without my wife and without my family, and those were some of the sweetest times. And it makes the reunion when you come back a lot better, too. And you love Florida a lot more. It's a means of fellowship with Christ. Number six. You find this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Two verses, verses 8 and 9. Paul here writes, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Beyond human ability to endure. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, and in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. They thought they were going to die. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. To go through something that humanly you have exhausted every bit of your strength and you have no more strength left. And you think you're going to die, and then you come out the other end, and you realize, not only am I not dead, but God did something beyond my human ability. It increases our dependence on the Lord. Let's move on to number seven. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, again, Paul's writing, to keep me from becoming conceited. Pause there for a minute. Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus was extremely conceited. He didn't know it, but he was. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had attained religious achievement uh, far beyond his peers. And he was proud of it. And when he came to know Jesus Christ, the potential of the pride now as a Christian because the same zeal he put to being a Pharisee, he's now putting to being a follower of Jesus. Nothing held back. And because God knew the human heart, he knew the potential that the apostle Paul would have to become conceited as a Christian like he was as a Pharisee. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. God gave him all kind of revelation and God gave him a tremendous world ministry that was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I mean, you're talking painful. And isn't it ironic and mysterious that it's a messenger of Satan? 
There's debate and still will be till Jesus comes on what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Some people believe it was a memory of the past and him persecuting Christians. That's not my view. Some people believe that. The, the word suggests it was something literally in his human body that tormented him. It was some kind of physical infirmity. That's my view. And it was from hell, but it was for heaven's purposes. And sometimes when, when other people are getting healed, God doesn't choose to heal you as much as you want him to because that thorn, that pain helps to keep you humble. And then number eight is right in the next couple of verses. Second Corinthians 12, verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I love what Jim Simbola says. I love a lot of things Jim Simbola says, Pastor Jim Simbola of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. He said, as soon as you believe you can do it, the Holy Spirit says, okay. But when you realize you can't do it, that's when the Holy Spirit can really work. It aids in keeping the power of God upon our lives. That's number eight. It aids in keeping the power of God upon our lives. And then number nine. This one you find in Philippians chapter one. Philippi and the church at Philippi was probably the Apostle Paul's most beloved congregation. They were the first to support him financially in his worldwide ministry. Paul writes the letter of Philippians while he's a Roman prisoner. And you better know, churches that Paul had planted, Christians that love Paul, are praying for Paul. And you better know one of the things they're praying for is for him to be delivered from his chains and his Roman bondage, imprisonment. And you know Philippi, the church of Philippi, they were really praying. But he writes to the church of Philippi, chapter 1, verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly, persevering in suffering in the will of God. It sparks courage in other believers. Let me tell you a little Bible story to illustrate the point. Old Testament King Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else, good looking. That's why they said, oh, he's the king. He's the one. He wasn't really God's choice, if you know what I mean. It's the one the people said, he's the one. But he's a miserable failure as a king, as good looking as he was. And he was a coward. They're supposed to be fighting the Philistines, being led by their king, but instead he is, he is shaking in his sandals. Nobody's fighting the Philistines. The Israelites are hiding. But his son Jonathan, his son Jonathan was of different character. His son Jonathan, who became kind of like a blood brother with young David, the giant killer. While Israel's army is hiding from the enemy. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's go over to that Philistine outpost. Maybe God will deliver them into our hands. 
It's nothing for the Lord to save by many or by few. In other words, we don't need a whole army as long as we got faith and courage. His armor bearer says, I'm with you, man, let's go. They go over, and here's the sign that Jonathan is asking the Lord to give them. And he tells his armor bearer, we'll go to the outpost, and we'll, we'll, we'll let them know we're here. Hey, hey, you Philistines, hey, look down here. And if they say, if they say, you come up here, and we'll teach you a lesson, that'll be God's sign to us that we're to go up and clean their cloth. But if they say, you wait until we come down to you, that'll be God's sign that this is not the time to fight. Is that crazy? If I was Jonathan, I'd have, I'd have reversed it. Why do you want to climb the cliff up to them? Let them climb down to you. But he reversed it. So they go over, hey, you Philistines. They look down and they see these guys. And the Philistines say, you come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. I can see Jonathan. Look at his armor bearer. That's the sign. And they start climbing up the cliff. And they get up to the top. And they killed 20 Philistines, two guys, 20 Philistines. I'm like, yeah, baby. You talk about underdog. And after that one encounter, they begin to rout the armies of the Philistines and the, the Israelites who are hiding and cowering. Look at what's happening. And all of a sudden they see the enemy starting to retreat because two courageous guys have stepped out. And now the whole army comes out of hiding, and God gives a great victory. Listen, do people in your classroom know that you're a Christian? Now, don't be arrogant about it. Don't show up there tomorrow after this message and stand up on your desk and say, I just want you to know all these years I've been a Christian, and I've been afraid to tell you. That's stupid. <laughs> but you can make a commitment, and the next time you have an opportunity, the next time you have an open door, you're not beating it down. You never have to beat down doors for the Lord. But the next time there's an open door for you to confess that you are a Christian, who knows what other Christians are just like you, and they haven't confessed their faith because they're afraid of the cost of that kind of public commitment. In the workplace, do people know that you are a Christian? And does your work testify that you are a Christian? As you have opportunity, if you'll publicly acknowledge that you are a Christian, and that's why you're not going to cheat, and that's why you're not going to be deceptive, and that's why you're going to do things honest and above board, and you're unashamed because you're motive, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So whether in the classroom, the workplace, the marketplace, the neighborhood, man, if we'll come out of the closet in a day when people are coming out of the closet that shouldn't be coming out of the closet, why are we hiding? Why in the world are we letting them go and come out of the closet? And then we're, we're, we're afraid and we're ashamed. Come on. Before Ryan shows up, I say, wake up, church. Ah, wake up. Be courageous. Just so you can set your lunch timer, that was number nine. And of 11, here's number 10. If we're willing to suffer, it'll open doors for the gospel. You won't have to ever beat down a door. The doors will just open. Acts 16 records once again Paul the apostle getting arrested, thrown in jail, 
Silas just happens to be blessed enough to be with him on this occasion, so Silas gets beat too. And here they are beaten and thrown into the inner part of the jail, the most secure and the most uncomfortable. And if you know the story, midnight that night, as they're probably not able to sleep because they're in the stocks and they're in all kinds of pain, they began to sing. And they began to sing worship songs to the Lord. And heaven was so pleased that God shook the foundation of the prison. The prison doors flew open. The chains on the prisoners fell off miraculously. The jailer, seeing what's happening, knows that the Roman authorities are going to execute him if any prisoners escape. He's about to kill himself, and Paul says, Whoa, don't do that. We're all here. Boy, you talk about influence for the Lord. Somehow, Paul the apostle kept the other prisoners from escaping. We're all here. And the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? You've come to the right prisoners. We have the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And the guy gets saved. He tells his whole family. They all get saved. They have a baptism service in the middle of the night. You talk about an open door. Let me give you another one of my favorites. Acts 9.15 records that when Saul of Tarsus came to know Christ, God sent a man named Ananias to him, a Christian, and he said to him, I'm going to show this man how much he must suffer for my name. But in that, he also said he will stand before kings and great men of the Gentiles. Not just before the Jewish crowd, but before kings and great men among the Gentiles, which was the majority of the world. Well, how's God going to do that? How's God going to open a door? Well, you can read about it in Acts chapter 23. In Acts 23, and I'll just summarize for you, Paul again gets arrested, thrown into jail in Jerusalem this time. (laughs) And in Acts 23, after he's arrested, Um, His nephew just happens to overhear of a plot that some of the Jews who hate him have to kill him. So the nephew goes to the Roman commander in charge of Paul as a prisoner, tells him about the plot. And you know what the centurion or the commander does? Here's what he does. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's 470 elite Roman soldiers. That's like the Green Berets of the day. And go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul. That's like saying, by the way, get the limo ready for Paul. The armored limo. That he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Heaven's looking down at God. I think this guy goes, that's a good plan. I like that plan. What's the plan? Let's get him arrested again and then send 470 elite Roman soldiers to protect him so that he can stand before the first great man of the Gentiles, Governor Felix, and tell him about Jesus Christ. And then he stands before one great man after another, including the likes of King Herod. And he shares the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. How do you know how God might open a door? The letter to the Galatians, the Galatian church, Paul tells them in that letter it was because of an illness 
that I first preached the gospel to you. When you get sick, and a lot of people are sick, how do you know that that sickness God might use to open a door? And then number 11. And number 11 you find in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Number 11, suffering in the will of God equips you and me to comfort others when they suffer in the will. I don't know if you know the name Merrill Womack. He went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, about four years ago, I think now. In a book that, uh, Stan, if you're here, Stan, thank you for the book. I'm halfway through. It's called The Divine Visitor by Jack Hayford. And just timely, the chapter I just finished talks about Merrill Womack. He was a singer very gifted Christian singer. He had a private pilot's license and he would often fly himself to engagements where he was going to do a concert or sing in a church or or wherever. In November 1961, to summarize the story, flying from San Diego to Spokane, the plane developed mechanical problems over southern Oregon. It crashed. But Merrill wasn't killed, but he was burned severely. Interestingly, doctors found that his synthetic wool sports coat had become hardened like a metal jacket from the intense heat. Curiously, for some reason he can't explain to this day, Merrill had not removed his sports coat prior to takeoff, as was his custom. The plaster-like material had served, like material had served to protect Merrill's upper body from burns and guaranteed healthy skin tissue that would be used in subsequent grafts. Many operations. He looked very grotesque, humanly speaking, after it. But let me read you this paragraph. In the months that followed, Merrill found that despite his disfigurement, his voice had actually become stronger. He continued singing for churches as well as schools, conventions, and service clubs. Frequently, he would visit people in hospitals and convalescent homes. Patients who were terminally ill or deeply depressed would welcome his visits. Merrill was capable of touching the deep pain in their lives. He discovered that what he had suffered as a result of the accident was actually a means of ministry. Those with emotional and physical wounds were encouraged to be in the presence of someone who had found the ability to rise above tragedy and experience God's healing peace. There are tremendous advantages to suffering in the will of God. And sometimes we don't recognize that what we're going through is part of a divine plan. I love to see God heal people physically. And I wonder why it's more rare to see someone healed than to see someone, especially who loves the Lord, continue on in their suffering. Thank God for the message to the church of Smyrna because it is a clear and fresh reminder that there is a positive side to suffering in the will of God. 
As you continue to study the book of Revelation, you'll see destruction and death, but also the incredible future that awaits you if you're a follower of Jesus. The pictures painted of the throne room of heaven are inspiring and exciting, and you'll one day get to stand where John stood. You'll meet the Lamb of God, who took away your sins. You'll rejoice with the angels and spend eternity getting to know your Creator as He always intended, in perfect love. This is something to cling to as you move through the difficulties of life, and we hope it spurs you on to share the incredible truth of salvation with everyone you meet. Thanks for tuning in today for The Living Word. We'd like to tell you how you can access more teachings from Pastor Danny. All you need to do is visit our website, ccfstpete.church. Click on Sermons to be directed to our YouTube channel, and don't forget to subscribe. That way you'll never miss a new edition of The Living Word. Are you listening in the St. Petersburg area right now? If so, we have a special invitation for you. Pastor Danny and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship would love to have you join us for our weekend services. Find out more and get directions at ccfstpete.church. Thanks for tuning in today, and we hope you'll join us again right here on The Living Word.